By now you'll have heard or seen that I'm working with a new golf app called Tangent, who are also sponsoring this show. It's the smartest AI caddy in golf and is able to recommend not only clubs to hit, but target locations based on the math behind strokes gained and your own personal shot patterns. Unlike many other shot trackers, it also takes into account and adjusts for hazards that are out there. It has sensorless tracking with an amazing automatic swing detection that you can use with your Apple Watch or your phone without any need to buy any attachments for your clubs. And my favorite part, the post-round analysis data helps you immediately see where you can improve and gives you simple breakdowns that you can dive into if you want much more detail about your stats. It then links this data to recommendations and actual practice drills that you can use to improve. Getting measurable data for both on-course and practice drills makes Tangent one of the best game improvement ecosystems that I've ever seen. So download Tangent for free on the Apple App Store or at tangent.golf and use promo code SWEET30, that's S-W-E-E-T-3-0, for 30% off. So you'll get a free trial, and if you like it and want to continue, it'll give you 30% off a subscription. So just try it out, play a few rounds with it, and I know you'll love it. So that's Tangent, T-A-N-G-E-N-T, and enter code SWEET30. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back to another episode of The Sweet Spot. This is John Sherman from Practical Golf. And as always, I'm joined by... Adam from Adam Young Golf. This episode of The Sweet Spot is brought to you by our friends at the Indoor Golf Shop. They are the place to go online if you're setting up an indoor simulator for your home or business. They've got all the major brands like we talked about on our last episode, like the Foresight GC Quad. They've got Skytrack, Unicore, Flightscope. They make amazing enclosures, screens, hitting mats, pretty much anything you need for your indoor studio. And best of all, they've got a team of experts there. I know a number of Sweet Spot listeners have already reached out to them. So you can go on their site at shopindoorgolf.com. You can give them a call, ask for Gerald or Hunter if you have questions. If you want to get ideas for your garage, media room, or basement, they can help you with that. So thanks for their support and check them out at shopindoorgolf.com. So the last two episodes, we talked, we had iron fitting, which you weren't there for. Sorry about that, Adam. You missed out on that one. And then the last one, we talked about launch monitors. So, actually... Do you know why I didn't say anything then? I was like, did I miss out on it? Yeah, you don't even remember. <laughs> no. Yeah, the reason why is I actually listened to that episode. So, I feel like I've been through it in my head. I listened to that one the other day. So, you were there, but you weren't there at the same time. I was there in spirit, yeah. Okay. Well, a quick little anecdote before we get into this week's topic. I did work with Woody earlier this week. If you remember back in that iron fitting episode, I was, I'm pretty happy with my irons. I've used them for five or six years. I don't think you need to switch irons all the time, but we were going to just do a little bit of a check-in on my equipment to see if 
there was anything that could be done. I texted you some of my stats from the GC quad, Adam, and you were like, what the heck? <laughs> so essentially, we were looking at the seven iron and I'm always on the edge of, of functionality on ball flight. So I'm, I'm spinning a seven iron like 4,500 or 4,700. And I, I'm like just at the limit of, of this being too little. He looks at descent angle. Do you look at that on your GC quad at all? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, it's a calculated metric. Yeah, yeah. Stopping power is going to be descent angle, spin. You know, everybody looks at spin, but I think descent angle is more important for it. Yeah. So we were looking at that, and you know, my spin is low, launch angle is fine, but it was about a forty-five degree descent angle, which is is not horrible. It's, it's obviously I'm I'm playing decent golf, so it's working. But I'm just trying to find out is is there something he could do to maybe get my iron spinning a little bit more and launching higher. And if you did listen to the episode, we tried a few things, one with a, a shaft that potentially could have helped, but it was much heavier. And we tried a different head that he thought would spin more. And I just couldn't find the center of the face. It was a bit of a disaster. So it was lower spin and really bad contact. So that didn't work. And then we tried another head that he thought might be appropriate. And that was a no-go. The spin was at 4,000. So my irons are fine, but I thought I'd, I'd bring that up because it was kind of an interesting example of... You know, sometimes it makes sense to get new equipment if you could provide a substantial, tangible benefit that you could bring it onto the course. And then sometimes with a player like me, that's the best I'm going to get. And that's okay. But there's no sense in me getting a new set of irons just for the sake of it. What I have is fine. Yeah, I think most irons are lower spinning these days. I know everybody uses the rule that whatever number iron you have, it should be about a thousand RPMs for each number. So a seven iron spinning at seven thousand RPMs. That's like based on twenty year old equipment. Yeah, I think that rule is kind of fallen. Not it's not completely irrelevant, but obviously, yeah, the the irons don't suit a player like me, unfortunately. Yeah, so it was interesting to see. My swing path is still a little wacky, but it works. That's why I was surprised about, yeah, that one. <laughs> I think I was probably maybe a little – sometimes when I swing indoors, I don't maybe swing almost the same as I would on the course because I'm not seeing this huge hook on the golf course anymore. But another thing we did is we unfortunately had to cut my driver down to 46 inches. So, that was sad because of the new USGA rule. Aww. Yeah, it's a sad moment. But so I was wait, still, will I be getting closer to you in drives now when we're playing our sim golf? I don't know because I was trying it out. And I was still hitting it pretty far. My swing speed on the quad was like 113, 114. So I was I was cranking it up. That's down to how they measure the speed differently. Quad looks at face speed, whereas something like a track man looks at the mass of the club head. So what, what you'll usually see on a quad is a higher swing speed, but a lower smash. The ball speed will be identical identical across devices, but exactly. Yeah, my ball speed is still like 160, low 160s. And obviously, the smash went down because it was registering a higher swing speed. But I thought that was interesting to see. And I'm going to be trying out a new hybrid and five wood over the winter. In any event, if you haven't listened to the last two episodes about launch monitors and iron fitting, go check them out. Just a reminder to everyone that the Sweet Spot is an evergreen podcast. So, if this is your first episode or your fifth, you can go back in the library and they're not really sequential. We're not talking about PGA Tour news. So if you go back to episode three, I think it's just as relevant as it is today. Yep. They will all be relevant in the future. I think this, the type of things that we talk about aren't going to go out of style, I don't think. Let's hope not. So what are we talking about today? Scratch, the very, very 
popular topic. You asked it on Twitter and got a flurry of it, of questions relating to it. Yeah, it, it's you know I always I get a lot of thankfully a lot of readers of my site and listeners of the show and, and of your site as well get in touch with us and they ask great like really engaging questions and one I get over and over again is is like you know what does it take to become a scratch golfer or shoot level par or below par and the answer is I, I think it's a it's simple and it's complicated at the same time with everything in golf. So, I thought we would take an episode to kind of discuss a number of things like how much time it could potentially take, like relevant statistics. Is it even worth your time to set this as a goal? And some of the other stuff that myself and you have probably figured out over the years and we can talk about some impact stuff. It's a... I don't want to call it the mountaintop of golf because I think that's relative for each golfer. I think... A 15 handicap can be just as happy as someone who's a plus three. And in fact, as someone who plays with a lot of plus handicaps in tournaments, I have come across a lot of golfers who are not happy. You know, they're, they're so obsessed with peak performance and being the best they can be that, you know, I look at other golfers sometimes who are not as skilled and don't score lower, who are just happy to be out there and enjoying time outside with their friends and they play little matches with one another and that's you know their version of the game and they I would say a lot of those golfers enjoy it more than the plus 2 handicaps. So I think that's a important point to make in the beginning. Yeah, the happiest I was looking back in in my history was when I was probably around about a 25 handicap because at that point I was good enough to hit the ball, you know, it wasn't frustrating that I was whiffing it or anything. But I was seeing consistent progressive improvement from you know week to week and I was figuring out certain things and it was it was almost magical you know the first time I went from banana slicing it to hitting my first draw shot was just I remember that day vividly you know I picked up like 20 30 yards instantly and I was like wow this is what golf can feel like that's amazing that's probably the happiest I was I think seeing just improvement relative to where you are is is what makes us happy in the game or in life yeah, you saying that reminds me of when I first took up the game with my friends. I was about 12 or 13 and we played most of our rounds at a park course in our town. It was like, you know, some short par threes and short par fours. And I remember the first time I hit a green, it was like, I think it was the third hole there. It's like 100 yards downhill. And I remember hitting it and we were like jumping around and going crazy. And like, you know, those moments are etched in my memory forever. And And, and certainly, you know, that's you know, you kind of had the whole game ahead of you at that point. Like you said, like there's so much level of improvement. Unfortunately, I guess a lot of this podcast is about like, well, how good can you get at this game? And the answer is, I just don't know. I don't know if I'm at my peak yet. Maybe I still can get better. I think I can. And someone, you know, who's a 10 or 20 handicap, maybe they've got some room left and, you know, some juice left to squeeze or not. We don't know. Yeah, I've still got a bit myself. Yeah, I, I feel confident that I've gotten better every year for the last six or seven years. And I think there's still more to go. Either way, I enjoy that process, whether I get better or worse. It's fun for me. So, yeah, I think this could be potentially a little bit of a philosophical discussion as well. Yeah, it's a good a good thought. I, I haven't been thinking about that, but how would I get better? I, I've got a lot of distance to gain, definitely. You know, I could at least gain another 20 yards if I did some speed training. I'm just waiting for my hip to finish healing. But yeah, a lot of the stuff that, because I've just started playing again after a big layoff, is just polishing, really. Just like playing skills, you know, judging the wind. You know, I, I'll hit a good shot. 
And it's like, oh, I, you know, I forgot to take into account that, or you know, I've I've hit a little bit of a flyer, or I've picked slightly the wrong club because you know I'm still figuring out the yardages out here in Nevada where things go a little bit farther. So really, just polishing those playing skills. But in terms of how I hit the ball, how I strike the ball, I don't think I'm going to get too much better with that. Not that I'm amazing at that. It's just you know, it would re- would require a lot of practice to get better at the striking part whereas i think the low-hanging fruit for me are the playing skills right now what about yourself yeah i mean for me when i look at my game i think the you know how did i get from i went from being you know a perpetual three four five six handicap you know as a high school golfer didn't play much in my 20s and then over the last seven or eight years as 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 i was able to play and practice a lot you know got down to that like one or two handicap level, kind of got stuck for a while. And then, you know, we'll get into the statistics and time. But for me, it was the driver. I talk about that a lot. Controlling the face, striking it better and adding distance and keeping it in play. I used to be very wild with the driver. So, that helped. And for me, I also think it was the putting. You know, me learning aim point, getting to a green reading system, finding a grip for me that I liked and working with the Seymour putter, which I like. I have my own little system on the putting green now. And a lot of it was just, you know, making a few more of those six, seven, eight footers, maybe a few 15 footers here and there and speed control. So I think for me, my iron play was always good enough, but my T game really held me back and then getting a little bit more putting performance. So I still think those are the main areas where I have some way to improve. What did you do with the driver to become less wild? Well, I think we should do... Someone asked me to do... They're like, you keep talking about this. I'd like to do a separate episode on driver practice. I know we've had an episode about how to hit it farther, but like, I think you know, there's a lot of things that I did and certainly things that you know about it and the advice you give on your site and your plans can help with that too. So... I don't want to confuse this conversation with that if that's okay, but we can talk about that. That was more of a statistical analysis and we'll get into the stats. But let's start from like let's start from the top here. What is scratch? Exactly. So scratch, I mean, first of all, some people assume handicap is your average score. It's not. It's your potential. It's like I think it's defined as what you could potentially shoot on a neutral golf course. So if someone says that their handicap is zero and they're scratched, that means you're capable of shooting par on a neutral golf course. It doesn't mean your scoring average will be even par. In terms of how difficult it is, the USGA makes this available. You can go on their site. The average handicap for a male golfer is 14.2. And for a female golfer is 27.5. And that's people with registered real handicaps. There's probably tons of other golfers who don't have, you know, a gin number or or not in that database. Of those golfers that are registered in there, the golfers who register as zero or better in plus territory is 1.85% total. And that's for male golfers. I believe if you factor in like all golfers, you know, who are not in this data set because you would assume that the scratch players are probably keeping the more legit handicaps versus, you know, someone who's just taking up the game who doesn't have one. You're really talking about 1% or less of of golfers who are scratch players. And for women, it's even less than that. It's like half a percent. This is not a big proportion of the golfing public. Yeah. I I think looking at this morning, it says that the handicap system is your best eight scores. It is. Out of 20. 
So, I mean, you could see two different guys who are scratch who are completely different levels. Oh, so, yeah. I mean, someone made a point on Twitter, a really good one, that the handicap system rewards inconsistency. I mean, I'm the type of player who might score four under par for a few rounds, and then the rest of them might be about four over, something like that, if I was scratch. I'm a li- little bit better than that sometimes, but... You know, that type of person would come under scratch, right? They shoot four scores of four under par and all their other scores are four over. So that's quite a consistent golfer, an eight-shot range with a good good level of going deeper. Whereas you could have another guy who has eight scores of level par during his 20 rounds and then the rest, the other 12 scores, are, are way over, like in the 90s. And both of those guys, at least as how I understand it, would be scratch, yet they're completely different players, really. There's a few ways to look at it. We got a lot of questions about this on Twitter saying like, well, you know, what if you just played the same course that was suited to you? So, I mean, the way it works is like, yes, if you were someone who could fire a few three or four under par rounds, like that's going to make it quite easy to get into scratch territory. Whereas someone like me, I have a lot of rounds where I'm like one or two over par and then I'll pepper in some under par rounds there. I'm, I'm more consistent within an hour range, I would say. So, that's how I get to scratch. But I mean, I would say in general, you would have to be, you know, able to shoot par or better sometimes on a neutral golf course. So let's say you were playing an easier course. Let's say your home course was 5,500 yards, par 72, but the rating was only like 68 or 69. You're going to have to shoot more rounds under par to counteract the quote unquote easiness of that course. Whereas Let's say your home course was Bethpage Black and you're playing it from the tips. The rating's like 79 or something ridiculous like that. If you shot a bunch of 75s and 76s there, you could technically become a scratch golfer. So to me, it's like I I don't want to sound obnoxious. I'm going to try and be honest with people about this. It doesn't matter all that much because like I don't play golf for my handicap. I think there's a number of circumstances where like if you generally want to be a scratch golfer like you could make that happen like if i played my home course over and over again i could probably be a plus two or a plus three handicap but you know what does that mean i don't like playing the same course over and over again i like playing in tournaments i like playing different courses so you know we got that question a lot on twitter like what course are you playing does that matter should you play a course that suits you i don't know i don't think so i think you should just do what you're gonna do and don't try and manipulate your game for your handicap would be my answer yeah, I mean, I, I like playing a bunch of different courses around here. I, you know, the standard scratch or whatever you call it, the slope rating, that's going to adjust the difficulty for you overall. But yeah, there are some kind of cheat systems. Like I played Bears Best yesterday, and that was the type of course where if you hit the fairway, it's quite an easy course. Whereas if you miss the fairway, even if it's by a yard, it's a, it's basically a lost ball. It's just rocks and deserts. And so, you know, if you're a pretty straight driver, but not particularly long, that would, that would be an okay course to play. Whereas if you're longer, but you occasionally hit a couple of wild ones, that's going to really bump up your scores on that one. Whereas there's another course around here where all the off fairway areas actually slope back towards the fairway. So if you miss the fairway, if you're caught wild with the driver, it's going to roll back to the center. So yeah, there are certain courses that'll favor certain skills, but absolutely, I think a true scratch is going to be good around multiple different courses. Yeah. I would say someone who is, you know, now that I've been around enough, what I would call like legit scratch players, like their game will hold up 
anywhere. You can put them on a narrow course. You can put them on a wide open course. Like they'll figure out a way to score because they're just really good at reducing mistakes, which is one of the main keys to it. So yeah, a lot of people who ask that question, like what course should you play and all that stuff? Like, I guess that's my opinion on it. If you are like true, let me first say this. Like I also said this to you before we started recording. Let me acknowledge the chasing scratch guys here for a second. I know we have a lot of overlap between our shows. So I know there's a lot of people who listen to Chasing Scratch who listen to this show. And we we both love Mike and Eli. We've both been on the show and support what they're doing and love what they're doing. So I just want to make it very clear if the two of them are listening, which they might be to this one. We'll have them on the show at some point. Yeah, we're going to have them on the show. That's a given. We'll blow up the internet. But this is not an attack on either of them. What we're going to be discussing in this show, I fully support... And they're getting a lot better. I actually watched their major finale on YouTube. And these guys are looking a lot better. Like Mike's swing looks like very pretty. He's club twirling. Like Eli was mashing. I mean, I actually got a little frustrated with Eli in the beginning because he was hitting like some 330-yard drives and losing the hole, the first few holes. I'm like, come on, man. You got to capitalize on those. Those guys have kind of turned into the poster child of this movement of chasing scratch. I'm going to be... Maybe brutally honest is the right word about my opinions on what it takes to get there in this episode and and maybe some stats to back that up. But yeah, it's really hard and it takes a lot of time. And and to be honest, like most golfers are not going to get there. That's really the truth of it. Like if I pursued something else, like I think maybe I'm suited to golf for whatever reason, but... There's no way I'm getting to the top 1% of bowling or, you know, woodworking or anything that requires like, you know, I'm totally not suited for many other skills in life. It's not easy. It shouldn't be because that's why you see only 1% getting there. Yeah, exactly. Sorry, my my mind's going back to, I I wanted to make a point about the different courses as well because there was an interesting scenario where I grew up was quite a short course and it was quite easy on paper but the greens were quite bad and it was kind of tricky, you know, lots of trees, lots of places to lose balls. So on paper, because of the length of it, it was easy, but it's kind of difficult to shoot a really low score around there. So I know lots of people actually left that course and moved to a local Lynx course. And the reason why is the standard scratch there was much higher or the slope rating was much higher, but it was very windy. And that's the reason why it was so high. And so lots of people who couldn't control their ball flight would shoot high scores and bump up the standard scratch. Whereas players who could control their ball flight hit it low, they could kind of dog a a decent score around, even though they're not striking it great, you know, just hitting these low running stingers that bumble up there. And so lots of people moved to this course just to get their handicap down. And they did so, but I don't think it helped their game because they became the type of player who, you know, just hit it really low and, you know, they could grind out a score, but it wasn't. It wasn't conducive to scoring around a lot of other courses, if that makes sense. So there is for the Lynx golfers or the British people listening, it can make a big difference whether you're playing on different courses, Parkland versus Lynx. Oh, yeah. And and to be honest, like the new handicap, you know, there's an adjustment now where they're supposed to adjust the score based on the playing conditions. And to be quite honest, like... I logged, I was looking back at my handicap record this year and I don't really care what my, I I do and I don't. Like I don't obsess over my handicap. It is what it is. And I don't try and say that to sound conceited or something like I'm above it. I care about it. But at the same time, like 
I think 65% of my rounds this year were in tournaments. So naturally, like I'm under more pressure. They set them up harder. Obviously, my score was higher. I think it was two and a half strokes higher on average than my normal rounds. And I didn't really get many adjustments from the handicap system. So I, you know, technically maybe my handicap is higher than it should be versus if I just played one or two courses. But again, my opinion on this is just, (laughs) I wouldn't suggest... Like what you were saying, like all these golfers moving around courses to like manipulate their handicap. Like that doesn't sound fun to me. Like, or maybe it is fun to other people, but if people are asking our advice, I don't think that makes sense to be honest. Like just, you know, play what you're going to play and you can follow all the other advice we give you on this show. I think that will help lower your handicap in general and perhaps get a few people to scratch. The other, the other point I wanted to make, just this is a, a preface to going through this. I talk about a scratch handicap with my old 20-year-old amateur career in my head. So there was a big difference between a British scratch or a European scratch and an American scratch. Because I think your system has always been this kind of best eight out of 20. Yes. Whereas the European system was really weird. It was if you shot under your handicap, you would go down a certain amount of strokes, like 0.1 for every shot under. So it was always more difficult to get down in Europe. So there was almost like a two-shot difference. I remember playing against some guys who came back from American college and they said they were off like plus three, plus four. And I was, you know, expecting them to be absolutely amazing. And I was off scratch at the time and the same level as them, if not better. I was really disappointed with them. So I, I remember there's a big difference between it. So yeah, I do apologize. I might hold scratch to a higher standard than than most people do here. So when I'm talking about scratch, I'm probably talking about that guy who can shoot four under par four times, and then the rest are going to be about four over, something like that. Yeah, I think it's somewhat of a relative term is what we're trying to say. Yeah. Why don't I go through some stats here first, just to give, because for a long time, like when I was on the other side of this, and I think a lot of other people, like they don't quite understand what scratch golf looks like. Well, just because there's not a lot of scratch golfers around and and most golfers don't get to play with them. And for a long time, I didn't either. And I remember the first time I played with like a legit scratch player. I think he was a a former college player. This was like down in Florida and maybe my, I think I was in like my early twenties. And I just watched this guy play and I'm like, wow, that was just like so steady. Like I was expecting to see like some birdie fest and him hunting at every pin, but you know, he just drove it pretty far, hit a lot of greens and he knocked in like two or three birdies and shot his ho-hum one under. And I was like, wow, that just looked very easy and simple and it didn't look all that hard. I was expecting what I think a lot of golfers assume is going to be the key. And I hope one of the takeaways from this discussion, whether you're going for scratch or going from a 25 to a 15 handicap, is that becoming scratch or even better in general, it's not about those memorable, great shots. It's not about those, you know, hitting it to five feet over the stick, those type of moments. And I think one of the most important statistics to look at is double bogey avoidance. So I have a bunch of statistics here from ShotScope. They've kind of given me access to the internal system. I have all these spreadsheets in front of me. Hopefully, I don't screw this up. But they're tracking golfers all around the world. They have a GPS watch and a game tracking system. 
essentially they're tracking thousands and thousands of thousands of golfers around the world. And with that, they're able to analyze it using strokes gain now and seeing a lot of these trends and what separates, you know, a zero handicap from a 20 or a five from a 10. And the one I always look at is double bogeys and birdies. You know, most people assume that scratch golfers are making a lot of birdies. They're not. They're averaging about one to two birdies around when you, when you look at it in aggregate. Yes, some rounds they're, like you said, they're, they're four under and some rounds they don't make any birdies at all. What they do do is avoid double bogeys. They only average about one double bogey or, or, or less around. And if you look at like a 14 handicap, they're averaging about three and a half double bogeys. A 20 handicap is five and a half double bogeys. Like that's the big differentiator is there less blow up holes. I suppose it's just a little point. They don't completely eliminate them. I'm not trying to go against no, that. No, no, no. That's not, more yeah, for expectation yeah. levels because I don't want someone to hit one shot out of bounds in a round and then go throw their hands up and go, oh, well, you know, I may as well give up now because I've made a bogey or double bogey. That's not the case. I mean, they still have it occasionally, but there's far fewer of them. Oh, so. I, I could take you through some major meltdown holes I've had through tournaments this year where I was well over a double bogey. I had a few doozies this year. The one thing I always think about, of course, you're going to make mistakes. I don't want to make it. So they're averaging about one double bogey around. So some rounds they might have two or three and a lot of rounds they have none. They're still making mistakes. I think one of the biggest differentiators I see is you very rarely see a scratch golfer hit what I'd consider two bad shots in a row. That is one thing I always notice and I've noticed in my game is that if they hit that poor tee shot, they hit the smart recovery shot. They don't make a double mistake. They're very good at recovering from those mistakes to your point because they're going to make them still. They're not infallible golfers. You very rarely see, like I can tell that even when I see like a three or a four handicap versus a scratch golfer, it's usually the, the big mistakes holes that separate them in my opinion. And that's what I've noticed. And then the, the stats kind of bear it out as well. I'd say they don't try to make up for their mistake either. You know, that I know a lot of people might listen to, they don't hit two bad shots in a row and assume that, okay, if they miss a fairway, they're going to try and knock it stiff on the next one. That's not what we're talking about. I think that statement is a combination of their skill and their decision making so that, you know, if they do hit a bad shot, their skill is so high that they can hit a good shot next or vice versa. Like if they're in jail, they get out of it very quickly. You know, let's say you're in the trees, they punch out and then they have the skill to make sure they hit that, you know, 100 yard shot on the green, two putt for bogey or maybe make a par done instead of turning that into a triple bogey. That's what's very good at. I have a bunch of stats here, which I'll, I'll try and quickly go through just to show where golfers separate themselves. Yeah, fire away. I'll start off with strokes gained. And if you don't know what strokes gained is, certainly go back to our episode with the creator of strokes gained, Mark Brody. But this is a way, I think, a more efficient way to show how golfers separate from one another at all parts of the game because it gives each shot you hit a value. And essentially, the big takeaway when Mark first came out with Every Shot Counts and, and did his strokes gained analysis amongst pro golfers and recreational golfers is that he found that it was tee shots and approach shots that account for most of the scoring differential. Usually about two-thirds of the game or difference in scoring can be explained by tee shots and approaches versus wedge play and putting. And of that, approach shots were the biggest differentiator. 
I don't know if that came as a surprise to you when you first heard it, but it kind of shocked a lot of people more so with the putting thing, I think. I suppose it did because of that old cliche driver show putt for dough and, and Mark's stats blow that out of the water. But when you think about it, okay, it might shock you a little bit, but then you, you think about it and you're like, yeah, of course, <laughs> you know, good, good players, they're hitting a lot of good iron shots. And when I say good, I'm not talking about knocking it five feet from the pin. I'm just talking about hitting greens in regulation, you know, not not a, a bunch of missed strikes in there. And, you know, that green in regulation stat is pretty important when it comes to your scoring average, right? There's even a formula for it. What is it? It's like greens in regulation times two uh, and then take that value away from 95 is a good predictor of your score. I've never used that. Yeah, I have the greens and regs here. I'll, I'll go through that next. But essentially, his analysis holds up, certainly in the ShotScope database and other game tracking devices. So I'm looking at strokes gained for 5, 10, 15, 20, and 25 handicap golfers versus the scratch golfer. And they're losing the most strokes in the approach game. It's not even close. So if you look at a 15 handicap, which for all intents and purposes, we'll call that the average golfer, they're losing six and a half strokes to a scratch player on their approach shots. They're losing about three shots on tee shots. Short game, which we would say wedge play, greenside wedge play inside 50 yards is about 2.8 shots and putting is 3.5. So... Nine and a half strokes are coming from tee shots and approaches and about six and a quarter are coming from short game and putting. And that kind of holds up across the handicap levels. Like you see the biggest, like a 20 handicap is losing nine strokes on approach shots and the other ones are kind of holding steady. They're losing about four on tee shots, three and a half on short game and putting. So it's really the iron approach game that is the big separator and then as you get closer to scratch, like the 5 and 10 handicaps, things get a little less different. Like putting is not that big of a separator. Short game is not that big of a separator. But tee shots and approach shots are the bigger separator of those categories. So you got to get it off the tee and you got to hit good approach shots. Like I, I think those are prerequisites. And I'm sure, you know, you witnessing all the golfers you've taught over the years could kind of back that up with their striking skills, correct? Yeah, I was just going to say the first thing you think of when you think of a higher handicapper is their strike quality, ground contact and face contact. When you've got a true scratch, you know, someone is, is really good, they they don't make many errors in terms of strike. And so their distance control is going to be really good. So you, you'd see probably with the higher handicappers, most of their errors are going to be long and short, mainly short. You know, a huge part of that is they don't have enough swing speed then another big part of that is they're picking the wrong clubs they're basing it on their best strikes not their average and then uh, more importantly the biggest part of that is their strike quality is quite erratic they're going to throw in a couple of two three inch behind chunkers and then a few maybe even top shots at the higher handicap level whereas you know scratch handicappers just don't do that we are going to take a quick break and we will be right back when you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. LinkedIn is not just a job board. 
It helps you hire professionals you cannot find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to a new perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. Also on LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Just recently, they even launched a new feature that helps you write your job description, making the process even easier and quicker. And they know that small business owners like myself and Adam are wearing so many hats and might not have the resources to hire, so it's a great place to get help. Now here's what you can do. Post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. That's linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Yeah, and it's interesting is that, you know, we, we've talked about how traditional statistics don't give the full picture and are misleading. Here's an interesting one for you. Fairways and regulation, which I now view as a almost meaningless stat. Uh, if you look at fairways and regulations from a scratch player to a 25 handicap, it's almost all 50%. Now, of course, these are averages and people have their own tendencies, which is why I always tell people track your own stats so you can see where your game is deficient, especially with now strokes gained. But, you know, a scratch golfer is hitting 50% of their fairways and a a 15 handicapper is hitting 48% of their fairways. But then when you dive into it more, here's the big differences. It's distance. This is according to ShotScope. Their average tee shot by handicap, a scratch golfer's average tee shot is about 278 yards. A five handicap is 256, and actually is that, that's the same as a 10 handicap. You get down to that average level of 15 handicap, it gets down to 237 yards. And then a 20 handicap is 225, and a 25 handicap is 201. I'm surprised they're that far, actually. Well, actually, they broke it down by age, too. It's really the under 40 people. So, under players under 40 years old are averaging 260 and over 40 years old are averaging 224. So, you know, there's some differences in there by, you know, demographics, age, stuff like that. But I would tell, I've never, this is anecdotal. I don't think I've ever seen a legit scratch player who didn't hit their drives more than 240 or 250 yards around there. I would say that if you're looking to get to that level, that would be a prerequisite for me. And if you couldn't, like let I mean, it is possible to do it from like, you know, you're hitting a 220, 230, but you're gonna have to be excellent at your approach play and putting. You're gonna have to make up for it elsewhere quite a bit. Yeah, there was there was one outlier I can think of. I should probably shouldn't talk about the outliers, but yeah. Of course there's always outliers and, and, and we really can't account for that. You know, we're trying to give people like generic advice is the best we can. But yeah, of course, there. I'm sure there are scratch golfers somewhere on this planet who are averaging a 220 off the tee. Yeah. I was thinking of a guy called Gary Wilsonholm. He was a very, really good amateur golfer. He never turned pro though. And I think one of the, one of the reasons was the, the lack of distance. But yeah, he was off something like a plus five and didn't really get it out there that far according to folklore but most of the time you know it's, it's going to be very difficult if you don't hit it like 260 something like that to, to shoot scratch yeah which is which is really attainable i i view that as kind of good news i think that most golfers i see 
whether it's, and you can go back to our episode on how to maximize driver distance, whether it's through strike efficiency, you know, hitting it more centered on the club face, learning to hit up on it, you know, some of the stuff we talked about, or now, you know, doing physical training or the overspeed training. I think a lot of golfers can get to 240 or 250 off the tee with some optimization there, or also getting club fitting as well, getting the right driver in their hands. Like, I don't think that's a ridiculous goal for most players. Yeah, most people who are hitting it 200 yards can pick up 20 yards easily without improving their swing speed, just through improving strike and launch conditions. Yeah. But in the context of like, well, what does it take to be scratch on the top 1%? Like, yeah, you've got to be hitting it pretty far. And I would say that the farther you hit it, the easier it is. Like, I I can tell you from personal experience going from someone who drove it like 255, 260 to now being able to get it out there 280, 290, 300. You know, that just makes the game easier. I have shorter irons into green. I'm going to have better proximity on my iron shots. That more leads par to par fives and two. Yeah, more par fives and two or around it. So, that, that just results in a lot of easy pars and maybe a few birdies here or there. But most importantly, that distance off the tee, granted you're keeping it in play, that makes it easier to avoid the double bogeys because you're not going to be in a situation where you're 220 yards from the green and you can make a bigger mistake from there than you would from 120 yards in the green. Like this is a game of proximity. The closer you are to the hole, the better your scoring opportunities get. Yeah. Occasionally, I'll go off a forward tee if I'm just playing around with some randomers and they're off the forward tees. So that extra 20 or 30 yards that you're theoretically gaining in distance, it just makes all the par fives reachable in two for me. So it just becomes such an easy game. You know, I'm just, they're like par fours basically. And that's where most of the birdies come for the scratch golfers as well as like scratch golfers don't average under par on par fours or par threes. They're averaging over par. If they're making birdies, it's mostly on the par fives. So that that's kind of my key takeaway on the tee game is that I don't think you can become a scratch golfer unless A, you're hitting driver a lot and B, you're hitting it pretty well. And what I mean by well is you're keeping it in play, you're avoiding out of bounds and penalty areas and recovering situations and you're getting it out there a decent distance. Like 250, I would say, is kind of like a line in the sand. And then the farther you can hit it from there, the bigger your advantage is. What about penalty shots on, on tee shots? Have you got that data? I don't have that here, unfortunately. Yeah, I would assume that it's a straight line down as as your handicap gets lower. There's just less. I mean, you you just can't shoot one or two over par on average with penalty shots. It's just not possible. Of course, it can happen from time to time, but you know you can't be averaging you know two lost balls around. It's just not possible. I think some of that as well is down to strategy because. You know, everybody says, oh, well, if I want to hit fewer penalty shots off the tee, I've got to get better at my driving. Well, sometimes you can just pick better aim points on the fairways. Like, you know, I I played with a guy yesterday who I saw on one hole, he was trying to pick a point on the fairway that was just, there was no reason to. And there was another hole where I said, I'm aiming here. And he's, he's like, why are you aiming there? Why don't you aim down this part? And I'm like, well, if I miss left or right of that, then I'm going to be okay. So there was a bunker in the middle of the fairway, basically. And I was aiming at it, <laughs> knowing that only a, th- a third of the shots are going to go in. He's like, well, why didn't you go down that right side? I'm like, well, if I do that, half my shots are going to go in the bunker and half of my shot, or a third of them are going to go in the bunker and a third of them are going to go out of bounds. So it's just picking better aim points on the understanding that you're going to have a dispersion rather than be a kind of laser beam. Yeah, I mean, I'm actually 
I've been writing my new book every morning. And this morning, I was actually working on the, the TSOT strategy. And that's really one of the main themes of the chapter is that your main priority off the tee is to obviously you want to hit it as far as you can, but it's avoiding the big trouble. And what we've learned from Brody's research and certainly, you know, we had Scott Fawcett talking about decade and his tee shot strategy is that, you know, you just can't afford those big oops results. And some of the time it mathematically makes sense to, to aim away from the big trouble. Like if it's up the left side, you have to aim up the right side, even if that means you're going to hit it in the rough. Because that two-stroke penalty is just, it's so hard to come back from that. So, that, yeah, absolutely. Like the optimal tee shot strategy is, is certainly going to be part of a scratch golfer's arsenal. So, let's go to approach shots. This is where the bread is buttered. This is where the separation happens from handicap levels. And if, you know, you and I both agree that greens and regulation is still a relevant statistic. I think Mark Brody disagreed with us a bit and that's okay. But if you look at greens and regulation as a basic stat, a scratch golfer, at least in shot scope database, is about 60% or 61% of their greens. And then that, that drops precipitously as handicap goes up. A five handicaps, 44%, 10 handicaps, 36 15 is 24% and then a 20 and 25 handicap, they're getting down to 17, 10% level. So, whereas we didn't see any correlation where fairways and regulation, that was all kind of flat. I mean, the greens and regulation is, I always tell people like, you want to become a better golfer, like you have to hit more greens. It's just that simple. Yeah. Just like, you know, you could take the strokes gained a closer proximity that misses the green is worse in strokes gained than a, someone who's farther away, but on the green, you know, I, I would rather be 60 feet away and on, on the green than I say 30 feet away and in a bunker. I mean, statistically it's, it's better, right? Yeah. You, you don't want to be in, you don't want to be short. Uh, this is in our loose Stagner episode. You don't want to be short-sided. You don't want to be in bunkers. I'm looking at some stats they've got here and there's a few things that are interesting that pop out to me. Obviously, proximity to the hole is a big separating factor. A better iron player will land the ball closer to the pin on average. Like they're, when you think about that big circle of their dispersion, that circle gets smaller and smaller and smaller as handicap goes down. What's interesting is that when you look at where golfers are missing it by handicap level. So, I have misses long, short, left, and right by handicap level, the percentage of misses. Okay. So, (laughs) this gets back to our approach shot strategy episode where we were like, hey, this is what I always tell most golfers, pick the back yardage number and aim at the center of the green. Here's why that holds up. Do you know what percentage of golfers are missing the green long? Take a guess at any handicap level. Less than 10%. I you, you are correct. And it holds up across all levels. A scratch golfer is missing 6% of their greens long. Same for a five handicap. 10% is 5%. 15 handicap, 6%. 20. It, it, it's negligible. It's all between 6 and 4% no matter what handicap level. And what's interesting is left and right is almost the same as well. And again, these are blended statistics. I always tell people to look at their own, but I'll get to my my big point soon. Left and right is about, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten percent. It doesn't change that much by handicap level, but what do you think does? The short, definitely. Short, yeah. yeah. 
So a scratch golfer is leaving their approach shot short of the green only 26% of the time. That goes up to 35% for a five handicap, 41% for a 10, 51% for a 15, up to 58, and then 67% for a 25 handicap. So that is the big trend I've noticed. And then also proximity. Zero handicap, 66 feet average proximity when you blend all of their approach shots. That goes up to like 140 feet for a 15 handicap. And most of that is long and short as well. Like I've seen so much data on, on launch monitors now to see that while people complain, oh, look, that one's left. Oh, look, that one's right. It's like, well, most of your big misses on the course are short. You know, you don't like I can miss just as far left and right as a 15 handicap when we're playing, but my shots are going pin high. So my proximity by definition is going to, is going to be much closer. I mean, the first thing from a teaching perspective is how do you improve that distance control? Well, number one, technically get that strike as good as you can more often. And then obviously get the club selection better as well. Yeah, I think that that's a combination of strategy and, and just strategy. finding the center of the face and ground contact more often, which you know we, we always keep bringing back these impact fundamentals up on every episode. But it's not a shocker here, but you know, being able to hit more greens and even if you miss the green, being in a good position that's close to it is the biggest separating factor in scoring. And another point I would make that Mark Brody found out in his research and it bears it out in these stats from the course is that the bigger separator in approach shot performance are those longer approach shots. There's a big difference between a scratch golfer's performance from 185 yards. Like there's a bigger separation there in performance than if you were like 125 yards away. That happens on the PGA Tour. Like that's why Colin Morikawa is the best iron player on the planet right now is because he is just superior at his proximity with longer approach shots. When you get closer to the hole, it's harder for golfers, whether they're pros or even 15 handicaps to separate from one another because 125 yard shot is not as difficult overall than 185 yard shot. So that's one of the big things I'm seeing in the data here as well is that the separation occurs as you get further away from the hole on approach shots. Yeah. And at the amateur level, obviously 185 yards for someone like us might be a seven, six iron for a high handicap might be a hybrid. And yeah. It's, it's, it's just, just, it's a whole other game hitting a hybrid in. I mean, there's some really good hybrid players, but I'm going to be closer on average more with that seven iron because just from a physics point of view, if your face is one degree open with a hybrid versus a seven iron, you're going to get a closer proximity with a seven iron because there's more spin loft. And, you know, Let's face it, a 15-20 handicap is going to chunk that shot a few times, thin it where they only hit it 50 yards where someone like yourself is rarely going to do that. And then it kind of ties into the tee shot thing as well as like if you give yourself less of those longer approach shots, you will have a better opportunity to score. So the tee shots and approach shots work together, but you know that's where... I don't want to say all of the separation occurs and I'm not trying to make the point that wedge play around the greens and putting is not important. It's very important. You know, we've talked about that in other episodes where that's how a lot of golfers can get quick wins. But if we're talking in the context of being a scratch golfer, it's just you cannot score low enough if you're not hitting it far enough off the tee and you don't have a good enough approach game. It's just impossible to do it. 
Yeah, I think people have those good days with the putter where they, you know, hole everything in sight and they'd probably be three, four, maybe even five strokes gained on that day. And they think, oh, this is this is a possibility every time. But it's like what you see on tour, right? Yes, the, the winner of the tournament that week has a really good round of putting. But if you look at all pros over the course of the season, the strokes gained between the best and the worst putter is not as much as, as maybe the strokes gained between the long game. And so basically what I'm saying here is that we're going to have more lucky days or there are going to be a few lucky days with putting that aren't sustainable. Whereas, you know, getting your long game into shape, that's much more sustainable. Well, it's what you can show up to the course more with. Like you you can show up to the course more with being able to strike it well with your irons, controlling your ground contact your swing speed every day, if you can work on your swing speed that, and that's, you know, that's what a lot of golfers figured out at the pro level is that they can show up more with that. If you increase your swing speed to 110 to 115 as a pro, it's going to be there every week. Whereas putting, and I'll talk about the statistics really quickly with putting is that it's so erratic that it's so hard for everyone that it's just a part of the game where you can't separate as much from the pack because there just aren't enough days where you're draining every 15 footer. It's just not going to happen. Like even Lou made that point in our episode with him about even the irregularities on the green and playing later in the day. It's harder to make putts because of the surface itself is, is erratic. It changes throughout the day and you're subject to that. So, yeah, I mean, in terms you – know, I don't want to tell people like forget about putting in the short game. Oh, no, that's not worth it. No, 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 not at all. It but is important, definitely. Yeah, I think, you know, looking at the putting stats here – and these are kind of hard for shot scope because, you know, it's measuring from a GPS on putt length on the green. So, there could be some misreads. But, you know, in general, you're going to see the scratch golfers are making more of those quote-unquote makeable distances, which is really inside 10 feet. They're better at making five, six, seven, eight footers, but what they're also better at is three putt avoidance. Not by a ton. You know, I'm looking here, a scratch golfer is three putting 3% of the time. I don't really love two putts and one putts as much because that can get manipulated by, you know, whether you're on the green in regulation or not. But yeah, scratch golfers, three putting only 3% of the time. So they're not really shooting themselves in the foot that often, whereas a 15 handicap, it's happening 13% of the time. So, there's yeah, a few strokes. As, I look at these things as how much are they in, in your control. And, you know, whether you hole putts or not, it's not it's not really in your control because of all those variables. You know, you're going to have some lucky days and you're going to have some really unlucky days as well. But overall putting, holing of a 10-foot, 20-foot putt is not as much in your control as you'd think the creation of the speed is in your control. So that's a good thing to work on. And the long game is much more in your control as well through things like strategy and your technique. Yeah, I think, you know, my, as I've kind of gotten better at putting, it's mostly been speed control, keeping my proximity to the hole very close. Let's say if I have a 40 footer, trying to keep it within that four, five, six foot cone and avoiding that three putt. And then, yes, some 15-footers are going to roll in if I get the right speed and read on it. And then, you know, certainly I've gotten a lot better at making, you know, those five, six, seven, eight-footers over the years. And that's – I think that's more about face control because you're not dealing with as much break and and worrying about the speed as much from those distances. It's hitting your start lines. So, yeah, I mean, for anyone who's looking to get better at putting, I always say, like, you know, work on your face control at home. 
on those five, six, seven, eight footers if you've got a mat. And then when you're on the course practice screen, you got to do some speed control drills and certainly becoming a better green reader as well. But it's not, it's unrealistic to expect that you are going to outperform in putting so much that you could overcome like really terrible driving, I think is one of the main things that, you know, Mark Brody found. And certainly I've, I've seen in my own game and other scratch golfers is like, they're pretty good at everything, you know, <laughs> like they're decent drivers. They're good at, they're good at approach play. You know, if you look at short game statistics that I've got here, it's the same story as, as you get further away from the hole, it's harder to separate an up and down percentage. So from zero to 10 yards away from the hole, a scratch golfer is getting up and down like 80% of the time and a 15 handicaps only 50% of the time. So it's a big separation there. But once you start getting to like, 30 to 40 yards, you know, a scratch golfer gets up 27% of the times up and down and a 15 handicap only gets up and down 16% of the time. So, the separation becomes more and more difficult as you get further away from the hole. We had a great episode with Lou Stagner about reasonable expectations on putting and wedge play and a lot of it, I'm not very good with my wedge around the greens. I'll be honest with people. I'm just mostly looking to get it on the green. You know, if I can get it in that 10-foot window, great avoid the double and maybe make my par here and there. But I would say that's my worst part of golf is my green side wedge play. But it doesn't penalize me that much. I'm still able to play at scratch level despite, you know, being good enough not to make, I don't like chunk them or skull them all. That's very rare for me to do. I get it on the putting surface at a reasonable distance, but I'm not, I'm certainly not hitting it to three feet every time, which a lot of people would assume that that's just not happening. What have we got next? Yeah. So, overall, when I'm looking at what separates scratch golfers from the rest of golfers in terms of stats, yeah, I would say drive it reasonably far, keep it in play, have an awesome iron gain, have exceptional speed control on the greens and don't shoot yourself in the foot with wedge play around the greens. And there is, you know, every golfer has a different story. So, some scratch golfers are hitting it 320 off the tee and because of that, they don't have to be as great with their irons or putter and vice versa. If you're a great iron player, you don't have to be so exceptional off the tee. But what I would say is that you can't be so deficient in the tee game and the approach game that the wedge play and putting cannot account for that. It's just too big of a hole to crawl out of if you want to reach that level of golf. Yeah, you got to keep things within boundaries. I mean, most most scratch handicappers look pretty similar right there there aren't there aren't guys who are you look at and you say oh you've got an absolutely horrible long game but your putting is amazing every week (laughs) it's just it doesn't happen really yeah to be honest like i'm thinking back to like all the rounds i play in tournaments and stuff and like i've never seen someone like you know i've seen some people get hot with the putter but nothing where it's like oh my god this is insane like yeah they make a few putts here or there but it's a lot of like stress-free tap in pars or some nice, you know, I think with putting, especially when you're like trying to keep it around one or two over par, it's a lot of those six, seven, eight footers that are made for par that kind of keep the momentum going. You know, when I think back to when I was like a two, three, four handicap, I would miss so many of those. And now, you know, I don't step up to them thinking I'm going to make them or miss them. I just kind of go through my routine, but I think my skill has improved such that I'm making more of those throughout a round that it kind of keeps things going. 
that's one of the big differences I see inside of the 10 feet range. It's not necessarily like draining those 25 footers. It's just very rare to do that. So let's talk, uh, what other questions did we get on Twitter? I'm going through my list here. I think the the biggest question we got was like time, right? Practice, yeah. I think- Yeah, I think people were like, well, how much time does it take? Like how much, whether that's time, like there, there's two ways to think about time. There's how much time you have to play and there's how much time you have to practice, right? I think that if you can't play enough rounds a year, unless you're some type of like athletic freak, becoming a scratch golfer is like not possible. I play 50, 60, 70 rounds a year. That's probably what I need to do to maintain my level of play. And I don't practice a crazy amount, but I hit balls enough where I'm I'm keeping things fresh. So, you know, I got the question like, well, what if you can only play like nine rounds a year? I mean, again, no. unless you are, you know, someone like you, Adam, where like you work, I mean, I think you're an aberration because, you know, you have first of all, your skill level in general, but you have the ability to work on it at home and like you came off from a hiatus from golf and can still shoot under par. Like you are truly an outlier. There's a difference between trying to reach scratch and just maintaining it. You know, you have to remember when I was practicing 40 hours a week or or so, I'm playing probably to a plus three level maybe. So for me to maintain scratch, which is a worse level, is, is quite easy. I could probably do that with an hour a week of practice and maybe one round a week, something like that. So quite a low amount of practice that most people could do. But that's, you know, I'm not pushing myself there. I'm actually regressing with that. Whereas if you're an 18 handicap and you're trying to reach scratch, well, when I was an 18 handicap, getting down to scratch, I was having to, having to practice, you know, 10 hours a day on summer holidays. You know, I was a kid, so I'd, I'd go down to the golf course at seven o'clock in, mo- in the morning and not leave until it was dark, which was sometimes 10 o'clock at night. I was practicing all day to push down to that level. I looked at how many hours it took me to get the scratch as well. It was around about 4,000 hours of work. So, you know, if you did three hours a day for a year, that's a thousand hours, right? So that would take four years. So I'm sure there are some people who did it faster than I did, but I would say that's pretty much a minimum for most people. If you do it quicker than that, you're a, you're an outlier there. You're extremely gifted. I've seen some ex-athletes do it. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I played with a few ex-pitchers. One of them got down to like a plus three in two years, but you know, it's an athletic freak. You know who made a really good point on one of our earlier episodes? You remember when Marty Jertson from Ping was on probably 20 episodes at this point. You can go back and listen to it. It was a great episode, I thought. But he's a, you know, he's one of the top engineers of Ping, but he's also a top 2,000 golfer in the world. He's played in major championships. He's, a, he's an exceptional player. And I asked him about you know how often it takes him to maintain his game. And it was, you know, kind of a similar point on that maintenance thing. But he said he's like, it's kind of like compounding interest of skill. Whereas all that time and effort, you know, he put in, you put in, or or even someone like myself when I was a kid, all those hours, you know, they add up over time. So, you know, for me to go back and think about what I did, like all those hours I spent as a junior golfer, that's still baked into my game. I still have all that experience, all that time that I spent. So, I don't need to practice for 20 hours a week to maintain this level. I think I need to play at least once a week because I need to be out there experiencing the game like what you mentioned earlier in the episode. You know, if I'm not playing, 
I start losing my feel on putting and wedge play. I might start getting less discipline with strategic decisions. I might not judge the wind as well. Like there's so many things that occur on a golf course. And when we think about the time element, when I often tell people like how much time it requires, if you're not playing enough golf, and this is, you know, whether you're looking to become scratch or whatever, you need to be out there experiencing and paying attention to what's going on on the course. So then you can make those adjustments in your practice or think about what happened strategically or mentally. And you say, okay, I went through that experience. You analyze maybe what went right, what went wrong, and you make an adjustment for the next time. I just don't think that's possible if you're playing like once a month. It's very hard to do. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're just different skills. Like you could say, why can I practice one hour a week and still go out and play scratch? Well, you know, the things that I'm not going to lose, like distance, that's always going to be there, whether I play once a year or whether I play 20 hours a week, the distance is going to be there. All right. Accuracy might degrade a little bit, but if I get on a range, I like say I have uh, 10 months off and I go to the range, my first visit, I'm going to be rusty. However, the difference is if I'm striking it poorly, I can very quickly recalibrate that because that's just a mental skill for me now. That's not actually even a physical skill anymore. If I'm hitting off the toe or the heel, I can get that back to functionally center very, very quickly without any practice. And that's always going to be there. At least I hope it does unless I have some serious issue, but that's always going to be there. Having a pitching system. So, you know, if I lose my feel for pitches, I've still got that kind of clock system that I can go back to that doesn't require as much feel. So I know a 60 yard shot is a, a nine o'clock sand wedge for me. And that's going to be the same whether I have 10 months of practice or zero. I mean, it'll get refined with more practice for sure, but it's always that baseline is going to be there. And so these things allow someone like me to have very little practice and still maintain a decent level. Obviously, everything could be refined in my game with a lot more practice and everything can be improved with a lot more practice. But it's, it's very different if you have those things in place to when you don't have those things in place. Yeah. I mean, really what you're talking about is your time invested and it was efficient time. You know, you got smarter and smarter over the years, which is what I think occurs with a lot of players who reach this level is like they're paying attention and they're figuring these things out. You know, they're figuring out intuitively how to change their strike. They're figuring out intuitively what are the smarter decisions. And I think now that we have so much great information on golf, it could get people there faster maybe than it was 20, 30, 40 years ago. Like I'd say someone starting off on the game now versus in the 1960s maybe has a better opportunity to get to scratch because you know, we have more finite information on ball flight laws. We have launch monitors. We have, you know, instructors who are armed with better information. We have better strategic info on how to play the game optimally. We have a lot of great mental coaches now who've kind of learned from decades of what's gone on from pro golfers. So the point about the time is, is that, you know, if someone tells me like, well, I'm a 15 handicap, how much time is it going to take me to get to scratch? I don't know. I really don't know. You can't answer that because it's like, well, where is someone now versus where they want to be? What's the athletic ability for a start? I mean, everybody can do this. You can get two guys who do the exact same type of practice and one just 
excels and the other doesn't change as much and that could have intellectual components as well does someone understand certain things i mean you get get guys in other sports who can understand things like spins and even translate some of their feelings i can take golf and translate it into tennis if i want to hit a t- top spin tennis shot just because i understand spins it's interesting there's so many things that go into the rate of improvement with someone that you can't you can't really put a definitive number on it do you remember the dan plan do you remember this guy i do yeah he kind of popped into my head as you were saying the four thousand hours trust me i've been listening to you mostly along the way but i googled this in the background so this guy dan mclaughlin remember that book i think it was the Ten Thousand hour thought that it took was it malcolm gladwell or I forget, I forget the initial one. Well, I think Anders Ericsson yeah, yeah, yeah. is the original data. So, yeah, yeah there was this theory that if someone did 10,000 hours of meaningful practice, they could achieve like, you know, pro level exceptional top at their field. So, this guy, Dan, quit his job and he's like, I'm going to invest 10,000 hours into golf and see if I become a pro golfer. And what's interesting is, is that I'm just reading the follow up here is like, I think he got hurt along the way. Yeah, I think he hurt his back, right? Yeah, but he got – I think he put four or 5,000 hours in and he got down to a 2.6 handicap, which is pretty impressive. But, you know, he was practicing every day. I think he had access to some great coaches. He was playing a ton. I mean, he went from a complete neophyte and beginner to that within a year, which is exceptional. But that was his full-time job and he still wasn't even close to becoming a pro. And that, you know, I think – a sample size of one doesn't prove anything, but the thought that someone could go from not golfing at all to being on the PGA Tour is absurd to me. It's literally impossible in my opinion. Yeah. I'm going to plug a little book here by someone called Brian Murray. It's called Swinging at Air. And he sent it to me and I've promised to read it. I've just flicked through it at the moment because I've been so busy, but he's going through or has documented him going through as a kind of Dan Plan-esque thing. So, that'll be an interesting read for people out there. Yeah, I've seen these. There's a few examples of, I think, like on YouTube, there's been some players who've done this who like, they're like, all right, I'm a 20 handicap and they did get down to scratch. Like, so it's possible. But yeah, I would say, you know, for the time element and even the practice, like a lot of people were asking questions like, well, what do I need to practice to do it? I mean, that, that's kind of a very loaded question as well. Well, yeah, I, you know, I'm thinking about the chasing scratch guys now. I mean, they're the poster boys for this thing. And I suppose you can, you could say there's so many things that could take you away from getting down to scratch as well. Not that I feel that they're doing that. I'm just, you know, it comes to my mind that there's so many people maybe doing things that are not that relevant to getting them down to scratch like i played with a guy yesterday who's a pretty good ball striker he just needed maybe a few little tweaks a bit a bit of polishing he was off about a three handicap i think he just needed the polishing of a few certain things but he was so obsessed with his swing and his mechanics and i look at him i'm like dude you hit it like a scratch handicapper already you're just you know his his strategy was poor he just needed to refine certain things with his strike maybe pick better targets pick better clubs his mental game was not perfect as well he had such high expectations that when he hit an average shot he completely berate himself and and then you'd unravel as as part of that. So he was looking in the wrong area as well. So you could spend a lot of time practicing and not improve because you're not doing things that are relative to what's going to make you get to scratch as an individual. Yeah. 
you are preaching to the choir. That is the practical golf philosophy right there. Yeah, I think, you know, there's a lot of people who have done that through the mechanics. Um, obviously, like there, there's always a route, but, you know, people need to be realistic and analytical about these things. I think playing certainly with, with a lot of scratch golfers helped me, like spending time with them on the golf course and like just kind of watching how steady they were and in control of their emotions. Not to say that they were perfect with it. Like there was a guy I played with for about four or five years. He was probably in his late 50s or 60s at that point, but he'd been one of the better tournament golfers on Long Island for decades. And I got to play a lot of golf with him. You know, what I noticed was a lot of the things that you know, the stats bore out and thankfully what I'm noticing in my own game now is just more like steadiness. You know, he never shot himself in the foot. He hit his driver pretty straight, not incredibly far, but far enough. And he would work on all the things, not forever, that were bothering him in rounds. Like he would always tell me that he's like, I always, you know, look what's going on in my rounds. And then I just kind of work on that to make myself comfortable with it again. Yeah. He always talked about having a certain cadence on the course with his pre-shot routine you know, so a lot of the things that we've talked about on the show, you know, you see it over and over again with players at this level. So, yeah, when it comes to practice, like I think stats can be helpful. Like if you're using the strokes gain analysis and you're starting to see where you're deficient to players, perhaps at the scratch level, you know, you can do that with, with like Arcos and ShotScope now or even Decade and start seeing where you're deficient and then diving deeper. Like let's say you're losing strokes on approach. Well, where are they? You know, now you can take a deep dive and say, well, most of it's occurring from 150 to 200 yards. Well, why is that? Go in your rounds. Are you not striking it well? Are you just making poor strategic decisions? So there's a lot of detective work that needs to occur because getting to that last level, that three, four, five handicap down to zero, it doesn't sound like much, but it's, I think that's the hardest part is crossing that final bridge. Well, to plug my own stuff here in Next Level Golf, I've got something on routines. It's in the university section for all Next Level Golf members. And on the last one is post-shot routine, which is all about identifying or looking at that shot and analyzing it. And so I've got what I feel is the most comprehensive way of, of analyzing your shot because strokes gained and statistics, they don't tell you why, right? And that's the most important thing. So, okay, you're going to analyze it from a big three perspective. You hit that one short. Okay, why? Was it a toe strike? Was it a heel strike? Or was it a fat or thin contact? All right, you've got that. Now you can go in deeper. Were there, were there any mental faults to that? So was there fear? For example, I might thin a shot, but mentally, I was frightened of fatting it because I maybe fatted the last two or maybe that's been a pattern of mine on the war in the warm up in the morning. So you've got to take that into account. So there's an overcorrection there. Or, you know, you may miss left because you are fearful of the, the out of bounds. So there's these different levels of how you're analyzing it. Yes, you're analyzing the pure raw data, what happened with the shot. Then you're analyzing it from an impact physics perspective, what, what happened in the big three. And then you're digging deeper into well, what were the mental components, if there were. Sometimes you just hit a bad shot, and that's important to know as well. But were there any mental things there? And what I've noticed is with better players, almost all of their shots are mental. And what I mean by that is, yes, they will present the face closed or open, or they'll hit it maybe a little bit at the toe or heel. But there was a mental cause for that. As in, you hit it out of bounds left because 
of this mental reason. You're fearful of the right side, for example. That's much more prevalent in better players. Better players tend to be more introspective as well. They can dig in deeper, whereas amateurs see things more from a surface level. Oh, I hit it left because I, I came over the top of it. And it's like, well, yeah, was, it, was there any underlying reasons for that? You know, better players, when I ask them these questions, they always give a deeper answer. And I don't know whether the experience makes them more that way or whether being more introspective makes them a better player. I don't know that. But if you are more introspective, it can help you fix the right thing. Because, you know, for example, my faults yesterday were mental. When I made a bad error, it was mental. And so it would be pointless for me to go and try and change my swing, right? Because it's it's like, no, I've got to work on committing to committing or, or whatever the mental er error was. So for me, I'm actually going through a swing adjustment at the moment to deal with my left hip issue. And so I've adjusted my swing. I'm actually lifting the left heel because that reduces the pain in my left hip. But when I do that, the pattern is more to the right. And when I forget to do that, my driving pattern is more to the left. So there were a couple of times yesterday I hit a couple of bad drives because I forgot to lift my left heel. This is really weird because I'm always talking about, yeah, you shouldn't be thinking of internal things. But actually, when you're trying to circumvent an injury, there is a good call for this. But as I said, this was a mental thing. Should I go on and work on certain things? Well, yeah, I, I, need, to, I need to work on remembering. I need to work on, right, I've got to have some kind of mental cue to remember that swing thought before I go in. So I need a pre-shot cue, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, the on-course stuff, you know, when I think it's almost like a chicken or the egg scenario with skill and confidence and these mental mistakes and fear. So, like when I think about, you know, when I wasn't playing golf very much in my 20s and I would go play randomly, I used to like look at the golf course with like absolute fear. I'd be looking at the trees and the bunker and the water and, and like everything. It was it was like they were all like attacking me at the same time, <laughs> which I know a lot of our listeners can certainly sympathize with. I'll be honest, dude. I feel like that now. I can still shoot level par. I play golf a lot out of fear. I think that's a testament to your skill. So there's like a balance there, right? Like if your skill is that much better, you can overcome that. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say it doesn't, it doesn't usually affect me that much. But I just wanted to make that point because I know a lot of people, they go out there and they're like, oh, I was fearful. And they think that you can't play well when you're fearful or nervous or something like that. That wasn't going to be my point. Like I, I've, I still get nervous in tournaments. I'm more comfortable. But I guess the point I was trying to make is that at least for me, as my skill has increased, my experience and decision-making and, and mental game has improved, I'm able to tune those out a little bit more effectively where I'm not like worried by them. And I think it's more of like an overall mindset on the course, a little bit of confidence where it's like, I know that I'm going to hit some errant shots through the round. But the difference between the golfer now and then was that I'm very confident that I can come back from it. And that's a combination of, you know, what we discussed earlier of skill and decision making, avoiding that two bad shots in a row scenario that I was discussing. So if I start off around now, where let's say I might get in the hole a bit, maybe I'm two, three, four over par after six or seven holes. I don't get so panicked anymore and I don't get as fearful and I just say to myself, I'll still approach every shot the same, but I feel good enough now that I can come back from that or at least, you know, steady the ship a bit. Whereas before, I think more panic would set in for me and more fear. 
I think on average, you know, for most golfers that the less of that you can feel of those negative emotions, I, I think for most players, they will play better. That's not to say that, you know, coming down the stretch, you know, in a round now where let's say I'm under par, I'm at peace with what happens because I've been there before. I've blown it and I've gone through it where I've succeeded and the score is almost not irrelevant. I care about it, but it's not like in the forefront of my brain anymore. Where I'm like, do not screw this up. I think that's a combination of skill, time invested, being through so many repetitions and experiencing so many things. So that allows me to play steadier golf where I'm not on these emotional roller coasters where when things are going well, I'm like, oh yeah, you're so great. And then when things are going poorly, I'm like, oh, this is a disaster. I'm scared of everything. It's more of an even keeled scenario where, you know, the pre-shot routine is the same, the post-shot routine is the same, and I'm just accepting things as they come. Yeah, I think you can almost look at it from two different perspectives. Neither is wrong. It's like, I, I know that old psychology, older psychology was all, all about getting rid of fear, right? Fear is a bad, fear is a bad thing and you need to think positive and you need to do all this. I think there's more of a, and I, I like this, a better shift towards understanding that no, fear is going to exist. You're going to have panicky moments. You're going to feel nervous. You're going to be frightened of that water on the left, but you learn to play through it. So feel the fear and do it anyway. And I think both can be right. I think we should work to reduce that fear while at the same time understanding that it exists. Because I know as a junior, I used to feel that I was inadequate or something was wrong because I was nervous all the time. Whereas now I just understand that, no, I'm just, a, I'm just a nervous character, but I can still play well through it and I can adapt to it. Well, that's really what, I mean, but mindfulness is, you're not judging, you know, that's helped me, the mindfulness mindset, where it's like, you're not judging emotions as they come, you're accepting them. Yeah. There's a book, Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning. I sometimes reference this and, you know, he was a prisoner of war in Auschwitz and he he was a psychologist so he he writes a book based on his experiences and it's a really short book really good read but at the end one of his philosophies is all about accepting or even trying to bring about what you don't want so he used the example of a guy who sweats a lot when he's in a presentation or for me it's my voice would crack when i was nervous and so he said that, well, actually, if you're trying to suppress that, it can make it worse. So he said one of his tactics was when, when you're given a presentation, you know, I would stand up and I'd say, guys, I'm really nervous here. I apologize if my voice cracks. And then you go ahead and you do it. And what I found is when I did that, I wasn't nervous anymore. When I told the crowd that I'm really nervous here, it completely dissipated the nerves. And so I think that's the same in this good shift towards what we're doing in sports psychology is understanding that those nerves and fear exist. So rather than trying to suppress them, which can actually make it worse, you just, you know, maybe openly say to yourself, you know what, I'm really nervous here, but it's okay. I think you have to accept things as they come. And I don't believe that anyone can control their mind. That's just crazy to me. I'm more of the thinking about the experience and the time thing is that you almost have to go through the, the good stuff and the bad stuff and accept what happens either way to be not, you know, to deal with it perfectly every time. But like, you know, I'll still get nervous before a tournament, but I'm less tournament, less nervous than I was 40 tournaments ago because it's, it's more comfortable to me. 
I even heard a quote, remember when Victor Hovland won last year, he was talking about how nervous he was down the stretch. And that's a great example of he still won the tournament and he was nervous, but you know, his skill and his experience still got him through it. Well, Haney in, in his, his book talks about how Tiger would throw up before certain events with nerves. I've always asked, I had the opportunity in college to like interview and learn from like some top business leaders, like some really big names. I always ask them the same question, which all of them seem to love, which was, I'm like, how much do you doubt yourself? And all of them would have the same response. They're like, that's a great question. And they would say stuff like that, vomiting before, you know, a big presentation or like telling themselves like, oh, you know, they're a top name in their industry and they don't, you know, they're always like talking down on themselves and like, yeah, this doubt and fear is, that's what drives a lot of people too. It turned out we had a lot more to talk about, so we're going to end part one here, and next week we will continue with part two. You can find me, John Sherman, at practical-golf.com, and you can always check out Adam's site at adamyounggolf.com. And thanks again to our show sponsor, The Indoor Golf Shop. You can find all of your indoor golf needs at their website, which is shopindoorgolf.com. They are the experts when it comes to the best indoor simulator for your home or business, You can give them a call directly and talk to guys like Brian or Wade who will help you purchase the best launch monitor for your budget. They can guide you through all the technology, projectors you'll need, different mats, all the sizes. They're incredibly helpful. So you can check them out at shopindoorgolf.com. And thanks again for their support. And you can join us next week with part two of the Scratch Golf Discussion.